0: My son, my crazy alcoholic son, had gotten brain damaged. You know, he needed care.
1: I knew that when my mother's dementia had gotten bad enough that our lives were going to radically change.
2: My mother died a year ago. People have been fixing my dad up. He met this lady and he's been dating her and and he's very
3: serious, so he wanted me to meet her. But there's a new pretty blonde lady here this time. She's complete opposite from the last one, the one who had been my stepmother.
4: Hey there and welcome to Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Now some weeks a storyteller will join me here on the podcast and tell one of their stories and together we will break it down. Other weeks we have conversations, we call them grit talks, with stellar tellers about the art and craft of the personal narrative story. And other weeks, like this week, we'll feature stories from our myriad events, The stories today are from Deja True, number three, which features Truologues. Now, why do we do all of this? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. This week, we've got two Truologues. Braided stories. The first one is from Neshama Franklin and Richard Munchkin, and the second from Ronna Levy and Tracy Starin. These are from our event that we had this past Sunday called Deja True 3. Check the show notes for upcoming workshops and events, including the Mental Health Happyish Hour, an open mic this Sunday, and Flash, which is a mix of story and improv and a little bit of courage, which is the following Sunday. In the show notes, you can also find a way to make a financial contribution, but whether you do that or not, we really appreciate your continued support. All right, let's dive in.
0: I was in the ER lying on a gurney. I was holding a New Yorker up over my head with my good hand because I always have to have something to read, but I could not concentrate on the print. It was the goddamn unsightly brush pile, and I was trying to get it into a container, and the container slid that way, and I slid that way, and my hands were trapped under the handle with my full body weight on top of them. And when I finally extricated myself, I looked at my left hand, and I, I didn't even recognize my little finger that brush pile was part of a a nightmare situation. My son, my crazy alcoholic son, uh, had gotten brain damaged. You know, he needed care. And I had to sell the house he had deconstructed to pay for that care. And this was as much as I could do. And I had screwed that up. And as I lay there on that gurney, I knew that my fraught but carefully controlled life was going to be radically changed.
1: I walked into my mother's hospital room, and she had a big stack of towels that she was folding and placing neatly in another pile. I walked out to the nurse's station to find out what was going on, and they told me that during the night, my mother would pull the IVs out of her arms and wander the hallways, confused. And the only way they could get her to stop was to give her a job. And they told her, you need to help us fold these towels. And she said, okay. And that actually made her very happy. And she sat there for hours folding towels. I knew that when my mother's dementia had gotten bad enough that she was no longer able to live alone. And my wife and I took her in that our lives were going to radically change.
0: They bandaged my hand, bandage as big as a baseball mitt. And i it's my dominant hand. But I said to the doctor, well, I can work with my right hand. And he said, you can't work at all. You have to go home and heal. I, I felt helpless and I hate to ask for help. And what was I going to do with all this unstructured time? Well, my son, David... He was in care, he was in town, and there was one thing we could do together. We could walk. David loved to walk pre and post brain damage. He walked all over town wearing shorts, often barefoot. He was very proud of his legs. And so we started on these long walks and we had these long meandering conversations and they sounded very different from the ones that we had had before, because for the first time in God knows how many decades, he was sober, brain damaged, but sober. And I heard a different David. He was tender. He was solicitous. He asked after relatives, he forgot that most of them were dead, and he was especially concerned about his sister. He said, is she doing okay? Is she still mad at me? And I assured him that he was no longer mad at her. It was kind of like being in the company of a brilliant toddler, and for the first time in years, I could be the mother to him that I couldn't have before.
1: What was I going to do with my mother? What would she do all day? She would sit and read the paper for hours at a time, usually the same article over and over because she would immediately forget whatever she read. But my mother always loved to walk. And when I was a kid, she was always a really fast walker and I could hardly keep up with her. So we would walk. We would talk while we were walking. And occasionally... There would be these moments of lucidity, and suddenly she was back, and I would see a light in her eyes, and it was her again. And she would ask me about my brothers or her brothers, and then it would fade, and that light would go out, and she was just gone again. And eventually, the walks became shorter and slower, but it was like taking care of a brilliant toddler. Only now I was the parent and she was the child.
0: My hand, it healed. And I got back to my complex work schedule. But, you know, I always left time to walk with David, no matter where he was. And he had moved around from care place to care place. And we would still have these amazing, surprising walks. He lasted mm, three, three and a half years before he got worse and worse and and then it, it was time and he died and it was a release and a relief, I believe, for both of us. But every time I look at that little finger, it's crooked, it's scarred, but that's what gave me the opportunity to tune in, to discover the purity, the essence of my son's soul.
1: I cared for my mother for three and a half years, and eventually she required more care than my wife and I were able to give her, and we had to move her into assisted living. She ended up living another three years after that and died at 94, but I really felt like I had lost her years and years before, even though those were the most difficult three and a half years of my life when I was taking care of her. I still remember those moments of lucidity when she would be back and suddenly I would have my mother again. And for those little moments, it was all worth it.
2: I'm having lunch in a fancy steakhouse, and I'm a little bit nervous because I'm sitting across from this lady who's attractive. She's got green eyes and dyed blonde hair. She's short. She's a little round, and she has a heavy Boston accent, like she says half instead of half. And I can see that she kind of like flinches, kind of nervously giggles when my dad swears. And she's wearing a dress that has a very high neckline and it's got ruffles around the neckline and and ruffles around her cuffs. And I'm thinking it's 1984, not 1884. And, and, And she's the exact opposite of my mother. My mother was tall, dark hair, dark eyes, average build. And my mother knew how to swear. And my mother never wore ruffles. My mother died a year ago and people have been fixing my dad up and he met this lady and he's been dating her and and he's very serious. So he wanted me to meet her. And she has two grown children in their 20s, just like me, my brother and my sister. So I guess that there are going to be new people in my life, my house and my family.
3: My father's house is so big and empty that our voices echo in the hallway. I'm visiting for the weekend, and I don't like this house that much because it's drafty and cold and lonely, but there's a new pretty blonde lady here this time. She's complete opposite from the last one, the one who had been my stepmother, who was mean and distant and didn't like me and kept my father from seeing me as much as possible, and she liked fancy clothes and lots of jewelry, and this lady has a warm smile and easygoing manner. And she's wearing jeans and a t-shirt and Dr. Scholl's clogs that reverberate against the tile floor with every step that she takes. And she's British. So she says things like schedule and aluminium and it makes me giggle a little. I had been ecstatic when my father split from my stepmother about a year ago, cause it meant I would get to see him more. And now he wanted Jackie to be part of our new dynamic. She wanted to be friends and I was willing to try.
2: The very last picture I remember of my mother, she was um, standing in front of a, a frame of a house. It was on Cape Cod. And my dad was building a house, a summer home. Well, four years after that lunch, my dad marries this lady. So now I guess it's their home. But in the summers, it's great. It's a, it's a lively, lively house. I mean, my, my sister goes with, with her three kids. My, my brother visits with his kids. Her son has three kids. It's it's just a house filled with grandkids and cousins and, and people coming and going. And, and and there's this backyard barbecues and bike rides and this, this suburban beach. And she's a good host. And she's a good homemaker to my dad. She cooks, she cleans, she irons the sheets. And she's got a really good eye. And the house is beautifully decorated. And she puts craisins in her salad. Total opposite of my mother. My mother was plain. I mean, we had had couches and chairs and tables, but nothing fancy. And we had Pepperidge Farm garlic croutons in our salad. I think about my mother. I mean, my mother was... um, she was aloof, she was depressed, she was kind of consumed with her illness. And I never ever had those mother-daughter moments, but I'm not looking for those now. But sometimes when I when I go visit their house at the Cape, I go shopping with her and she's got that really good eye and she can mix and match. And she, she knows where those designer labels are. And sometimes she buys me things with my dad's money, of course. And she gives me her pinky ring and she helps me pick out colors to paint my apartment. She loves my dad and she's a really good grandmother to the kids. And she's nice to me.
3: My father sells his big house and he moves into a condo in the high rise that Jackie lives in. And I'm delighted to visit them almost every weekend. This is the most I've seen of my father in my whole young life. Jackie and I spend so much time together. She lets me hang out in her apartment and play with her cats, and she takes me shopping for records with my dad's money, of course, and she and I bake and decorate elaborate sugary concoctions, and we're a family on the weekends, and eventually they get married in a small, intimate family ceremony, and she's officially my stepmother. She's also the only ally I have in my endless battle with my father's side of the family who bullied me through my entire childhood. She's the one I can talk to about how awful they make me feel with the terrible things that they say to me and how much I'm not looking forward to seeing them and how much I didn't enjoy the last family event that we went to. And she always seems to understand and she doesn't really like them very much either. My dad's 83,
2: his health is failing. And they've been married 22 years now. He's right by his side and she makes sure that he's comfortable and he has blankets when he's cold. And when he can't make it to the bathroom, she cleans up. They sell the house at the Cape and they move into a condo. When he dies and we're sitting with the rabbi planning the funeral, she can't make it because she's having furniture delivered. And when we sit Shiva all day at my brother's house, she shows up in the evening because she's been shopping all day with her daughter. And she, she gives my father's clothes away without even asking if maybe we want something. And when the money runs out, the money that my dad left to pay for the condo for her to live in, when it runs out, she sues us. I mean, it's like she's gone to this dark side, like she just knifed us in the back. And I I, I think about that woman over 20 years ago, that woman I met in in that lunch with, with the ruffles. And I think about my mother, my plain mother, my mother who was sick and depressed, but my mother who was a good, good person. She was a good, good person. And she didn't need ruffles to show class and grace.
3: They're married barely two years when my father dies suddenly of a heart attack. Jackie and I cling to each other in our grief. And over the years, she stayed an important part of my life. We still saw each other on the weekends. We still always baked elaborate desserts together. We traveled. And she even came and visited me at the dorms when I went to college. And she was always the person that I could turn to when my father's side of the family was too overwhelming for me. She was the one that I told that I was just gonna stop returning their phone calls when I was tired of the antagonizing and the intimidation. She was the one who I told when I changed my phone number to hide from them after one too many threatening messages on my answering machine. And she always led a sympathetic ear. Which was why it was so shocking to me when the intimidating phone calls and threatening messages started to come from Jackie. When my family couldn't get in touch with me, she started to deliver their messages for them. I'll never know how or why it happened, but she went to some kind of a dark side and it was like a knife in my back. And eventually I changed my phone number to hide from Jackie. And it left a big, empty place in my life as cold and as lonely as that big old house that my father lived in the day that I met her.
4: As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to our four storytellers, Nishama Franklin, Richard Munchkin, Rana Levy, and Tracy Starin. Thank you for those true logs. Check the show notes for upcoming workshops and events, including this Sunday's Mental Health Happiest Hour, which is an open mic, and the following Sunday's Flash, which is a little bit of improv, some story, and some courage. That is all for episode number 56. Boom.